You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to My Life in Four Trades, where we'll hear from some of the top investors about the best and worst trade investments and trade offs they've made in their careers. Joining me today is an award-winning hedge fund manager and market commentator. He's managed over a billion dollars in assets and now resides in St. Barts, where he invests in luxury real estate. It's my pleasure to welcome Hugh Hendry. Hi, Hugh. Welcome to My Life in Four Trades. Oh, la vache. I'm excited. (laughs) So are we. Before we get into your four trades, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background? You know, where did you grow up and what were you like as a kid? Um, I, I fear everyone is fed up hearing about my, my background. Um, the short answer, I spent the first seven years with my brain malfunctioning, living in a project, if you will. Mm. Um, I kind of an atmosphere of despair, an atmosphere of violence, um, with a family that was rejected by that society. And having done a lot of contemplation, and that self-contemplation, I mean, believe me, this is this is narcissism. You're, you're my therapist. I, I thank you for the opportunity <laughs> uh, to, to rest for, for, for an hour or so. Um, I actually find that I really am the love child of Margaret Thatcher and and the the kind of political economy that she unleashed in the United Kingdom back in 1980 or so. Um, My parents were given the opportunity to buy housing stock from the government at below market because they couldn't afford market. And, And so we moved from that housing project to another housing project which had more green space yeah and my parents purchased a house and they were already showing ominous signs of worrying at the most minute things and taking on debt just sent them over the edge and of course as i would have been seven or eight maybe i'd have been 10 11 actually at that point this would be yeah i'd be 11 12 and um and you 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 pick you pick all that tension up as a, as a child. Yeah, you do. And and so I I channeled, I channeled their tension, and like if you fast forward into the person I became, the person I I, I made a career of sorts around hedge fund management, um, I was a worrier, and I chose an occupation where you worry a lot, but you get remunerated for worrying. So childhood is. Like like everyone, child is uh, features very very prominently in the in the hard wiring of of who I became. So how did you go from this childhood to end up getting into the business of finance and trading? How did that happen? Where was that connection made? With the worrying that had been set off by my parents' mortgage, um, I you know I was the first kid in the family. I was the first kid from the the comprehensive state school that ended up at university. And, you know, when your father's a truck driver, um, 
the big leap forward is to train to be an accountant. Um, so I, would you believe, I, well, I studied a joint degree in accountancy and economics. Let's, let's stop talking about the accountancy. Um, <laughs> I don't think that would work. I, I was... I was sponsored. It's hard actually. to imagine you. Yeah, it's hard to imagine you um, yeah. sort of preparing taxes and absolutely and just head in the books all the time. During that um, that degree, I stumbled into a course called market based again accounting accounting research, and that put me in front of a data stream price terminal. You know, so this is going back a while mm. before Bloomberg, and you were cha- you were there to determine um, suppositions. So you were looking at um, price reactions to um, accounting, changes of accounting policy. And so a, a change in the life of the depreciation policy, for instance, could uh, be could prove detrimental to reported earnings, mm. but it should have no bearing on cash flow and therefore the, the value of the, the public value of the business um, should remain unchanged. Does that happen in practice? And so that was the hook for me. I, I just found that incredible. It was, you were releasing this mysterious genie from the bottle. So let's dive in then and talk about the first trade that stands out for you. And that was Reader's Digest. So set the scene for us around this trade. You know, how old are you? Where are you working? What's happening? So I, I am in Edinburgh. I am with this fantastically rigorous um, investment management business, which has gone on to demonstrate that in leaps and bounds. They were managing $3 billion back then. And hey, listen, we live in a world of asset price inflation, so sure, they, they manage more, but they manage $300 billion, You know I mean? They've really, they, they haven't lucked out. They've delivered and so I was 27, and I'm profoundly unhappy. I'm, I'm failing for the first time in my life. I have broken up with my long-term girlfriend. Um, I'm in Edinburgh. I'm surrounded by precociously talented, but kind of strange people. And I thought, I needed a like a Holy Mary pass. I needed, you know, I needed to do something extraordinary uh, to get people to recognize me. Now, at this point, I had been sent to, my, to a permanent station, if you will, which was I was number two responsible in charge for American equities. And so when is this? This is, I want to say, heavens, 96, 97, 98, 97, 98, 1997, 98. Now, here is one of the, the great overseas pension fund managers. Would you believe that they're in a balanced fund? So they would have had, what, 30, 40% in, equity, uh, in bonds, 60% in, in equities. Uh, within the equity portfolio, US stocks accounted for 3, 3%, not 33, but 0.3%. It was just incredible. And so I was like, guys, this, this, this is nuts. These are the best companies in the world. You know, now, yes, this was before the advent of you know, technology and some of the more obvious candidates, but even you know, you know, America rocks. Um, but there was a profound prejudice and the pre- uh, pertaining to current account trade deficits. I mean, 
they let macro get in the way of an equity shop. You know, crazy. Anyway, I thought my holy Mary pass was they were obsessed by the sage, you know, by, by Warren Buffett. And I thought if I could find a stock before Warren, if I could buy it before he alighted upon it, that would propel me higher. And so I convinced myself that Reader's Digest, it pain, it's, believe me, I've had a lot of therapy and a lot of medication to overcome this. Um, <laughs> but I convinced myself with the IPO of Reader's Digest that this was exactly a Warren Buffett stock. It's actually come back to life in the form of digital. I was, I, I can't believe it. Um, we used to have Reader's Digest around my house, if you can believe it. So I know, I know what it is. It's sort of a magazine. It had jokes. It had, it was a sort of a, how would you describe it? It had a little bit of everything. Articles kind of, kind of targeted at the women in the house, I'd say. Well, the joke was surely on me, okay, with this story. Um, you're right. So it was a, it was a digest. It, it was capturing the significant and kind of curious eclectic tales from the week before. Yes. And and once published, those items really have no value. So the input was kind of free. Um, and, and then you you charge for the for the output, you know, for the for the magazine and the subscriptions. And it's a little bit like at the same time, back back in that that environment, I was buying WD40. Um, and both of them were these astonishing brands in that in the United Kingdom people believed that Reader's Digest was a British company. In Germany, they thought it was a German company, and it pertains the same to, to the W, the WVD, uh, 40 in France, etc. Um, it overcomes barriers, and so there's this kind of national ownership, which I, I just thought was, was genius. And this, remember, this was a time of globalization. The Berlin Wall had fallen. And so to capture a platform that had that ubiquity. So I thought it was perfect. It became one of the three stocks in the American portfolio. And the IPO was poorly received. And it went down. And I checked my sums and I checked my papers. And I bought some more. We ran concentrated portfolios. Um, and the same, the, 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 if you will, let's take that iteration five times. You know, I, I just oh. kept buying and eventually I had to be tapped. You know, they had to like, you know, Mr. <laughs> Mr. Reader's Digest, you're out. You're, you are timed. <laughs> you, you are out. And so I've always chaptered this profound and disturbing episode in my life as the, I've ordained it as the, the arrogance and the conceit of a well-formed argument that I was blinkered to the reality that the thing was going down. And so the takeaway for that is that the very best risk managers, they're actually, if you will, glorified janitors. Um, they're very much running the logistics for Amazon. It's, it's more important that you keep an inventory, a reserve of fantastically good ideas, but you keep them on the top shelf. That's only, I don't even know if that's half of the business. The, the real value added is knowing when to, you know, put that arm up and bring it down and plug it into the portfolio. You know, so it's mm -hmm. the combination of the two. Never fall in love with these things. Never fall in love with the intellectual basis of what you're proposing. Which I think sets us up 
beautifully for your second trade, the second trade that changed your life, which was in 2008, which, of course, we now all know was the financial crisis that rocked the foundations of the global economy. You could argue we're still trying to recover it from now. So do you have this knowledge and this understanding as you enter that period that the majority are sucking up all the insanity molecules and and you've got a different point of view. Explain what was happening in your life and how you were viewing things. The insights came after the event. Um, 2008 was was shocking. Um, 2000, it wasn't 2008. It was the combination of 2007 and 2008. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, Greg what's his name, the Deutsche Bank trader of, of fashion, of, uh, of folklore, who brought to the community, um, you know, the, the debacle of what the banks were doing with the, you know, these CDOs. And, and what, what were they doing? Remember, they were, they were investing in portfolios, a national basket of house mortgages. So they were owning these because they afforded a higher yield than treasuries. Um, and that was proving very successful because, you know, the Fed in response to the NASDAQ crash had brought rates down to the floor, brought them down to 1% back then, which was, it felt unprecedented. So there was a great kind of desire for, or need for income. And the success of the, you know, these mortgage portfolios had meant that each additional issuance had come with a lower yield. And so a bright spark had concluded that, hey, we could create an additional lift in the income if we were to sell insurance on these portfolios defaulting. And that ain't never going to happen. That's money for old rope because we've got years and years of data. And and yeah, we've had episodes and severe and harrowing episodes of house price declines in Texas or California, but you know, never across the nation writ large. Um, and, and of course that was embraced. Um, and what you were doing is you weren't doubling your risk. You weren't tripling your risk. You were increasing it by like quad quadzillion in the event. Now, what was that again? Now let's just stop and pause for a second. That was the conceit and the arrogance, the blindness of a well-formed eye. It was a, the premise was logical, but taken to extreme, but the premise was logical. And Greg was the first one to say to Deutsche Bank, but what if they default? What if they what if this goes wrong? And yeah, like, oh get out of here, you know. You wear too much man perfume, you know, go and speak to clients, go and sell more. Um and and so imagine I I get this. I'm like one of maybe, I mean, let's exaggerate, maybe there's 150 people in the world, and we've worked it out that Within, we don't know when, but within, let's say, two years, all of the great financial institutions in the world are going to blow up. They're going to cease to exist. It's harrowing. No, no one else sees it. No one gets it. You know. Why did you think this? It, it, it was just evident. It was. It was. It was. It, it Not was, to everyone. They were. They were. Be, well, okay, because I, at that point. I had become immunized to the conceit of a well-formed argument. 
what are the trades that that worked so well for you? Was it shorting Lehman stock and the and the stock of that equity, or was it what 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 exactly did you bet on? My fund was weekly dealing, uh, which is unusual for for hedge funds. Um, I wanted that sharp pencil. You know, if you weren't happy with me, take take the money. You know, that the penalty for miscalculation or the penalty for me just not being in the moment were meant that clients, I was an ATM, take your money back as soon as possible. And of course we had a custodian bank, so we couldn't be burning, you know, like we, we couldn't be liars. We couldn't say, oh, <laughs> it's okay. You know, it had to be, all assets have to be independently valued and approved by the, the custodian uh, bank. And I had a bank based in Dublin and the Dubliners, the Dubliners said no, because the, the original trade, sorry, to your question was, mm-hmm. you know, I, I had the, the CDS. I, I had the, all the, the CDO squares. You know, what the banks were selling, I was buying. I, I was buying, you know, the, the insurance that this thing was going to blow up. You know, I, you remember you, you were buying a million dollars of protection for less than, than $2,000. Mm. So I was buying 2000 I was picking up all these um, in, insurance contracts. And this was, like I said, it, this was innovative. The actual underlying product was had only just been conceived two or three years earlier. And the custodian has to make a market in my fund units. And it has to believe in the, you know, the sanctuary and the solidity of the valuation. And they concluded that they just could not guarantee a market price in the weekly trading of my units. And therefore I, I was not allowed to trade. So my ticket mm. had been so there's a great travesty about to hit and I've just been denied, you know, access to the, to the escape ship. So, so that was a lot of effing blinding uh, Dubliners, et cetera. Um, but to answer your question um, simply, well, there's nothing simple with me. Um, the, uh, we hear a lot today about the inflation rhetoric, the inflation, the prints are very high. They're 40 year highs, the fed, clueless fled fred having said oh no forget about it it's now saying oh we're worried we're going to raise rates short-term interest rates are being guided higher long-term rates are kind of sticky which is to say that the the yield curve has flattened mm. but it's still i want to say it's still positive 50 60 points uh, back in the day it was flat it was zero and so uh, and it very rarely stays at zero it, it's an oscillation and zero is very much um, a low point and so we were able to put on a position where for every basis point, uh, we could make or lose uh, $3 million. But then to some regret, to great regret, I, I complicated it because I didn't know when. And I knew that the authorities were fighting the release of this and it could last longer. You know, the old Keynes thing, it can last longer than than your than your uh, bank account or whatever. Yeah. You know, they can remain irrational longer than you can remain solvent. Um, and so I did something obtuse, um, which added to the drama, eventually it added to the drama. What I did was I bought that cash twos and 10, but I bought it three years forward, which is complicated. You know, so mm-hmm. markets are, again, are a theater of just the absurd. They'll make your price on anything. So they'll make your price on where that curve will be in three years time. And the, the, beauty of that was it meant that I had a derivative convex position, which was negative carry that I was, I was, I didn't have to fear the passage of time, the passage of time. Mm. There was no gamma destroying my very, very substantial risk position. 
So I thought all that that meant was that all of my returns were sequestered until the final second, just as Lehman literally had to go boom. And then they went, ah, bugger. Okay, there's there's your 200 million. So that's how I did it. And so this uh, confirms your the lesson that you've already learned from Reader's Digest uh, about the arrogance and conceit of a well-formed argument. What did you learn about yourself from this experience? I learned a great deal in the aftermath of that because I became a very pious, outspoken commentator on what had come to pass and and very I was I was trading outside the reach of my engagement for my clients. I was I'd become a social an angry, which is anger is emotion. And I was I was an, an emotional commentator on on social mood and trend. And I was trying to provide transparency to what happened. But also I, I wanted more retribution. Um, I, I, you know, there had been malfeasance, uh, and I, I didn't want this nonsense to happen again. Um, and I lost myself, and worse than that, I, I lost at least two years of what should have been great performance. You certainly hit a low point, but you also learned about the importance of having patience and staying the course, which I think leads us perfectly into our next trade. You picked any random stock that I purchase owing to my belief in 17th century rice traders. What is that? Talk to us about what that means for people who are maybe not familiar with 17th century rice trading. Well, we've already discussed the conceit and the arrogance of a well-formed argument. Now we're turning to the conceit of modernity, that somehow we're better than those that came before us. And I think my samurai tale um, reveals that we're not, you know, that for all of the, uh, the, the computing power and whatever else that we have at our fingertips, we're still made up of the same DNA and the same fallibilities as those that came before us. So again, I had spent this inordinate amount of time with pushing paper from my desk to other people's and, and, and writing things full of theory when I was introduced um, to charts and they revealed they revealed drama they revealed so much because the construction of it you create a, a chart of every day's action so you have the opening price the closing price the high price and the intraday low price, you know, they, so you have the intraday peaks and then where the market settles. That reveals a great deal. And then the rice traders had these incredibly evocative names for these patterns that that, that uh, reoccur within trading. You know, three black crows, um, pregnant lady. I mean, they were just all bizarre things. <laughs> so I, I was drawn to these candlesticks, and I wanted to see lots of data, like lots of years data. And I would sit at home and the advent of the iPad was 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 insane for me. You know, it, it, it was like sheet music. And I would sit at home or I'd be in the office. I'd sit in the dark office. I'd have all the lights off apart from it. It was like a dark library. I'd be playing Pink Floyd or whatever. 
Um, and these charts would be flashing by. My, my team would set it up and I got about mm, 10 seconds or so, a chart would flash up and thousands in a day. It was meditation. I sat there and I started to observe patterns and I started to observe and I had scribbled down the ones that I liked. Oh, what is that? You know, and then we discovered that I was noting down a clustering of businesses pertaining to industries or where some related price was moving. And the first thing I would do is I would buy. As soon as I, I saw a pattern, I would take a risk position. I wouldn't take a full risk position, mm. but I would put it in my portfolio. I, I would have 400 equities and then God knows how many commodity futures and God knows how many currency pairs and fixed income. I, I just, I bedazzled myself. <laughs> I remember Weir Group. Weir Group is a mid-cap British industrial. It's responsible for pumps, uh, which are used um, in the extraction industries. And in 2006, my charts, and therefore the voices were raging inside my head, buy, the mantra, buy, 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 buy. And I initiated, and, and the people, the analysts and and who became you know, investment partners with me, were impeccable, really. They were impeccable not only in their logic, but in their courage to push back against me, which I valued perhaps as much, if not more, than their intellect. And it was such a hard gig to validate this position. This, this was a business which had been on the wrong end of a, of a cycle, which had gone nowhere. And yet they had made a good fist of it. They were, they were managing the business well. And that was appreciated by other investors, which is to say it was always looked on fondly and therefore it was always kind of highly rated. Mm. And, and therefore it was, I, my charts were saying this is going to double or triple. But when you looked at metrics, our metrics were profitability ratios versus the enterprise value to sales. Uh, and then trying to work out where those margins you know, were they, were they too low? What was the average? Were they going to go higher? Are they going to go lower? And um, what kind of return on capital would that provide? Is that sustainable? And, and again, what, what, is, what is our return when you go through the matrix of, of the earning or the enterprise value to sales multiple? And this thing was fully loaded. This thing, this was like a, a really, really, really heavy 747. It was going to, this thing was not going to take off. The load-bearing weight was too great. The load-bearing weight of other people's expectations was too great. And yet that stock went up five, six, seven, eightfold. Huh. And do you know why it went up? Because the oil price went from 40, well, went back then it went from about 25 bucks to 140. And no one had that in estimates. And what my Japanese rice traders and the voices in my head could see, they could see change. They couldn't name change but they could, see, they could feel the presence of change and the presence of change would be brought to bear on the fortunes of this business. And I was one of the very few people that could see it. It's interesting that you included this as one of your trades because it's not really a trade. It's sort of something that runs throughout. Why was that important to put in the top four? Because it reveals, it reveals another way of approaching risk, which is not, the dissemination of which is not popular. I'd like to think, if I achieved anything, I'd like to think that I, I try to shine a light on other forms of expression, of expressing risk differently in ways that people regard as too soft, uh, 
as, as ridiculous. And so, as you correctly highlighted, the kind of the melodic and the colorful and the shape patterns you know, were creating my palette, allowing me to survive. And remember, for all of this absurd tale, the thing that I achieved more than numbers was I achieved tenure. I achieved 15 years of underwriting. And not many people do that. So that's why it's important. That's why it's in there. So let's talk about your fourth trade. And that was China's blow up in 2012. And this was one of your disappointments. So again, sort of bring us to where you're at and the kind of circumstances surrounding this trade. I'm going to answer your question with a question. Can anyone tell me the second biggest hit by the Sex Pistols? Number one, God Save the Queen. Number two, it's not obvious. Okay. So where am I in the pantheon of the Sex Pistols? Okay. 2008 was number one, baby. Um, <laughs> gold in 2003, 50% first calendar year, number one, baby. Um, the, the, the platform which gave me the right, the justification to have a hedge fund was uh, the, my management of a long-only European mutual fund, long-only equity mutual fund, um, which I um, took on in April 1999 and managed to 2005. But, but through the tumult of the NASDAQ collapse, where the German stock market lost 80% and you know, active management was just destroyed, um, in a fund where you, there was no long short, um, I actually made money despite that devastation. So number one, baby, <laughs> forgive me. Um, but the one that got away uh, was, was China. So after I'd put closure on my, my pithy, pious social observations on the, on the British Broadcasting Corporation's evening channels uh, and got back down to business, and what I had concluded was that those events would manifest themselves first in America and then would move on to Europe. And by 2012, that had happened. You know, we'd had the European sovereign debt crisis, the pigs and, and all of that, Portugal, Italy, Greece, Spain. Um, but I was very firm that it would conclude uh, with, a, with a blowout in China that actually the explanation for what had come to pass in 2008 could be found in what I labeled the dirty peg, um, the, the, the managed exchange rate between China and the, and the United States. And I felt that it was very, very synony synonymous or very, very close to what we'd seen in the 1920s, where the U.S., played the Chinese role to Europe, the old continent, and the, the laggard or the, you know, like losing its vitality. And in the 1920s, you know, in the aftermath of the, the devastation of the First World War, Europe should have had a, a vigorous rebound of economic activity. Except the young tiger from New York kept stealing its lunch, eating its lunch. You know, productivity was high. Um, everyone wanted to invest their 
costs were lower owing to the productivity, etc. And so Europe just could not get out of the mire. And with the gold standard, this the gold standard was a contract which determined uh, that engagement between continents, and it didn't provide relief. And instead, it and without relief, the pain of the manifestation was just held captive within the system, and it manifests itself in the parabola in the Dow Jones. And so I was, I was saying, hey, listen, if, if left unchecked, this is what's going to happen in China. And, and at some point, it will destabilize uh, the Chinese economy. So again, it was absurd to believe that actually you could have a nationwide fall or collapse in US house prices. And in 2012, it was actually, it was rightly, <laughs> it was rightly absurd to believe that uh, an e a substantial economic reversal could befall China. But, you know, absurdity was my, my, uh, was, was my egg. And, <laughs> and what made it and why it's relevant is, and, and again, to the reasons why I enjoyed 15 years of tenure it was such a great, I actually, I think it's one of my best trades, despite the outcome. I think it was one of the best trades. Because you don't necessarily have to make money. Uh, if you're trading well, you can trade brave without fear of the consequences of being wrong. And what I mean by that was that the way, the conjecture for that, for how I was playing that, I wasn't playing it in China. I was playing it in the satellites of Australia and Japan. Australia, evidently with its commodity basket, and at the same time with its inflated or, or very uh, in, well, inflated house prices and, and housing mm. bubble, if you will, which had not corrected with, with 2008. And forward Australian interest rates at, in 2012 were like five knocking on, possibly knocking on seven if you went like three, four years out. And, you know, this is, the, this is with the Fed at zero. So um, part of the trade was, was taking that on. You know, we were, um, we were receiving. Those, those, those rates were just too high. And then the other trade was, you know, I said to you that you could insure a million dollars of, mortgage, US mortgage risk for the paltry sum of $2,000. Well, the same thing was evident in Japan. I, I could insure against the default of uh, a Japanese steel company with very high costs that didn't really make money in the good times um, and was operationally leveraged. You have a, a furnace, you've got to heat the damn thing regardless of where your capacity is. Um, and on top of that, it was double jeopardy. They had financial leverage. They had an enormous amount of debt. Mm. And you could buy a million dollars of insurance for 2,000 bucks. Well, like, you know, I'm going to have some of that. So I, I persuaded some and I raised $100 million in a special fund. Um, we the, the fund would charge only a 1% management fee. The manager would not be able to realize a calendar performance gain. You would only re realize a performance gain uh, with the successful extraction of gains by the client, you know, and which would be netted, I would I'd be paid at that point. Um, so imp impeccable, really. And 
I wanted to talk about it because you know it, it didn't come to pass. We we ran that fund for two years. Um, it provided periodic protection. I mean, this thing, this was a hundred million dollar fund that would have made a billion dollars if it come to pass. Mm-hmm. No, it didn't come to pass. Okay, so it, you know the metrics were eventually after two years we paid back sixty cents in the dollar for something that may have made ten bucks on the dollar. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm proud. I, I take that trade every day. Now, why we're talking about it is I've described myself in, in many ridiculous terms, but more than anything else, I was a time investor. Mm. People talk about being value, being growth, being momentum, being a, an investor in pharmacy or big tech, or of course in regional blocks like Chinese stocks. Or credit, you know, the, the, the list is endless. My oeuvre was time. Mm. And again, just as a function of who I was as an investor, I've only just recently learned from one of my co-conspirators, uh, Tom Roderick, um, about the Chinese Zodiac. And the Chinese Zodiac has, has 12 characters like ours, but unlike ours, which is measured by the heavenly motion of the earth around the sun, which takes a a year. The Chinese system requires 12 years for those characters to come into play. So the most important analytical ingredient in my makeup, I was unaware of. Mm. I was unaware. My timing was out by 12 years. And when I go back and I look at the papers, that I, I was responsible for. The logic is impeccable. We really didn't get anything wrong, except there wasn't a sudden, sudden and unexpected reversal. But that paper that I wrote was April 2012. We are today in February 2022. So you're thinking that the crisis that made its way, blew out US, hit Europe, comes to roost in China, we're at the precipice of this playing out. And am I right in thinking you're talking about Evergrande and some of the stuff that we're seeing happen? Yeah, that's a manifestation of it. Mm. So the the thing that has momentum just now is you want to be long um, domestic sovereign Chinese uh, government bonds. Uh, there, there are some retail funds out there, which anyone can can touch upon. Um this is the only thing rates rates are always the best trade, but rates are the only one that are actually in motion, giving this this craziness legitimacy. Um, you would be entertaining notions of going. You want to be long volatility, given everything that's happening in the world just now. You know, it seems to be the dawn of chaos, and being long the volatility embedded into um, Chinese the, the Chinese uh, currency vis a vis the dollar. So, like at the money one year forward, or slightly out of out of the money. Um, by betting on the Chinese currency weakening is is very cheap. In the 10 years which have come to pass, Chinese property is now, I think it's either at the same level or in absolute terms greater than the US property valuations. It's certainly four times Chinese GDP. It's at the same level of absurdity when you know the Chinese the Japanese Emperor's Palace was valued greater than the state of California. Um profound red uh, flashing signs. Um, and then let's end on on further absurdity. Uh, we have 40-year rates of inflation and huff and puff, but we can't 
I mean, maybe it will change today because we're closed, but uh, we can't seem to get US 10-year treasuries to trade through 2%, which we've, we've got the most negative real rates. I mean, it's incredible, and yet gold does nothing. But we have very negative real rates. You know, what's the beef, Mr. Treasury Market? What's the beef? Because the genius of the treasury market and rates, it's the presence of hedgers. At some point, people, they don't know why, like my voices and things that cause me to do things, they just feel a little bit off about things and they look to lay risk off and they do that by hedging and rates manifest that manifest itself. Yeah, I think that's why Raul always refers to it as the, the chart of truth, right? Yeah, yeah. There's much wisdom in, in, in that statement. So we are coming to the end of everything. We have to come to an end of this, but the treasury market has been the greatest bull market. I want to say the greatest bull market ever, ever. It's, it's you know, been rolling since 1982. And it's greatest because, not just because rates have gone from 16 and they went to 40 basis points, but because that was happening in the risk-less market, which meant that was a market that you could be leveraged so, you know, the, the Bridgewaters of this world exist because of that profound, well, because, you know, their, their own, the, you know, their, their own good endeavors, but, and because of that, that passage. I want to say to you that a bull market of such historic proportions will not end without absurdity. Okay. It began with absurdity. It will end with absurdity. It began with, in 1982, with every single rational economic indicator telling you that the inflation of the 1970s was rapidly disappearing and was set to be replaced with something way more benign. And yet yields went higher and higher and higher. And so I just think before the treasury market is over, the bull market is over, I think rates will go back to the low of the Asian body invasion, the V of 2020, if not lower still despite overwhelming evidence that there's probably a change in the price series that we call inflation. And I think the reason for that will be events coming out of Beijing. And the thing that I fear most is a very irrational result. I fear that China mm. will be persuaded to adopt, I mean the irony, but to adopt what Taiwan did in the midst of the tiger crisis in 1997 and Taiwan 20% devalued versus the dollar makes no sense all the debts are local they're not you know the the dollar evergrande is immaterial mm. um, it's the onshore um, and the economy is still super competitive you're seeing with you know in the in the trade account um, it doesn't solve anything but it's kind of like I was kind of saying this the other day, you know, if you want to see me do this on 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 Twitter, it's the conclusion to Squid Game, right? Yeah. Just two contestants left, and I'm holding something, and you're like beating me, beating me, beating me, and and I'm and I can't, I can't, I can't hold back because in this hand I've got a grenade, and the pin's out, and if I take my hand off, boom. We're gone. And that's the last thing I want to do. But you're about to win. You're about to get that big check. You've got this big dagger and you're about to boom into my chest. And I go, baby. And I take his out. I fear that the squid game explains the end game for the uh, the dollar CNH. Um, and actually, 
We are approaching a great currency reset. They're very rare. It began with the abolition of the gold standard, which began 29 to 32. It was replaced by the bread and woods where we kind of, you know, messed up gold with, with a kind of dollar, uh, a dollar ticker. And um, it had already been displaced when Nixon closed the window. It'd been displaced in the mid 60s by the advent of the euro dollar currency market. What is euro dollar? Euro dollar is overseas banks creating dollars. You know, and, we, and it's like, we should teach the Federal Reserve how to create dollars. You create money when you make loans. So the euro dollar market is um, overseas banks making loans in dollars. And that system culminated in 2008 and it's in retreat. And when that third leg, the Chinese leg goes down, and I suspect when they devalue in a, in a kind of Mad Max manner, we will have to reset the international community with a new currency alignment. Hugh, this has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for coming on My Life in Four Trades. Thank you. All right, that's a wrap on this week's edition of My Life in Four Trades. For more on the series, visit realvision.com forward slash my life in four trades. Make sure to use the numeral four. This podcast is a production of Real Vision. Our executive producer is Lisa Desai. Our producers are Frank Fowler and Michelle Ribeiro. Our sound engineer is Levi Mercurio. Our production assistant is Ranjani Vankarakrishnan. And this show is hosted by me, Maggie Lake. podcast listener and this is a podcast ad reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads go to lipsandads.com now that's l-i-b-s-y-n ads.com